Welcome to another episode of the InnerWaps podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell, Senior Marketing Executive for InnerWaps in the UK. We have a special episode of the podcast for you today for Black History Month 2019. And I have the pleasure of speaking to Professor Sean Waring from London South Bank University, who recently wrote a piece called Leadership Intelligence and How to Talk About Race in Universities. Hi, Sean. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Let's start from the beginning. Tell me a bit about your career and how you ended up at London South Bank University. Okay, so um, I did a PhD in um, gender and communication uh, back in the early 90s. Um, And then I went into uh, academic life. I was a lecturer. And then gradually I got more interested in um, supporting people to teach and making sure education was was kind of working effectively in universities. And that took me up a senior management route. Um, So now, as you said, I'm pro-vice-chancellor or deputy vice-chancellor, which puts me on the executive team of the university. You wrote an article called Leadership Intelligence and mm-hmm. how to talk about race in universities. As I mentioned before, what were your reasons for writing the piece? Well, we'd taken part in the Race Equality Charter Mark. We were aiming for a bronze award. We weren't successful, um, but we learned a lot on the journey. Um, and a particular driver for us is that over half our students here at London South Bank University are BAME um, and about a third of our staff. So we're a very diverse university. Um, but we knew from our data um, with students um, there's been a the sector's had an attainment gap which means that BAME students coming in are less likely to get a first or a 2-1 degree than white students Um, the gap has been quite large it's been about 20% it's been right across the sector and that's not driven by entry qualifications um, which is which is a really striking thing and we also know for staff staff are more likely to be on temporary contracts if they're BAME and often um, at lower salary levels, less senior. And we know that um, as you move up the career structure in universities, you see fewer BAME staff, um, and particularly black women we know are massively underrepresented at senior levels. So London South Bank had that problem like the rest of the sector, um, but we felt it was particularly pressing for us given so many of our staff and students uh, are in minority groups. So in your article, you mentioned barriers Mm. um, to success for black and Asian minority Mm. students. Could you elaborate a bit more on what those barriers actually are? Yeah. So um, I'm I'm sitting here as a white person. And one of the things I've realised, I think, in trying to understand what's happening in higher education in terms of why we see less progression for um, black staff, BAME staff, and uh, why students have, we know um, they're less likely to progress, which means to complete their degrees successfully, and they're less likely to get two ones or first, and they are less likely, in fact, to go into graduate level employment afterwards. So we know that at many, many stages of their educational journey, BAME students experience less success than white students. And what I think is there's a myriad of reasons for that, but it probably comes back to the fact that our institutions are set up on a, on a basis of white privilege. So in, in many parts of the culture and the process, um, BAME people meet barriers. And that could be um, the way promotion conversations go. It could be at recruitment. Um, it can be in a classroom where if you're a BAME student, the lecturer is less likely to look like you, um, to share your history, um, and they're less likely to use your name, perhaps. So, that, so there's a myriad of things going on all at the same time 
um, you're less likely to have your dissertation topic approved if you're a BAME student. So there are key moments in your education that we know that you're less likely to be affirmed. And I, I think that is a culture-wide practice, so it's quite a difficult thing to address. Um, and, I, and one of the changes I'd like to see is more BAME staff as lecturers so that a student comes in and they see somebody from their own ethnicity at the front of the room. Um, but obviously that's not something that could be changed overnight because it's to do with pipelines. So um, I think we have a, an absolute responsibility for trying to understand these barriers at all different levels and then working to change them. You call higher education uh, a gateway mm -hmm. to social mobility. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, so here at London South Bank University, about half our courses are professionally accredited. And so that means they go into professions where you need that degree sometimes to enter the profession, so nursing um, or quantity surveying, engineering, um, and you certainly need it to progress in the profession. Um, so we have um, a, a school of law and social science, uh, we have students going out as human rights lawyers, um, and you know, law as a profession is one that the, the degree is a gateway into it. So who can come to university, who completes their degree, and what classification of degree you leave with are all really important then to, to how those professions work. And one of the things I say about our students is I don't want them just going out able to work in that area. I want them to go out able to lead that area over the course of their professional life. I want them to be able to reach the top of the law profession or the nursing profession and be part of changing that profession for the future. And that's another reason why it's really important that our BAME students go out um, as graduates with first and two ones and they go into these professions and they're reshaping those professions which may also have been, um, in the case of law, traditionally more white than BAME. So talking about race for a lot of people, it, mm. it's quite hard, it's, uh, it's difficult, it can make people feel uncomfortable mm. for a myriad of reasons. Yeah. In your opinion, yeah. as someone who's written this awesome piece, what are some of the reasons why people find it so yeah. challenging to yeah. speak about racial issues? Yeah. Well, I think one of the key reasons is, um, so I'm, I'm 53 um, and I grew up in Swansea in South Wales. The conversations we were having when I was a child growing up about race um, were very simplistic compared to what I'd expect now. And the language that was around was different language from what it is now. And so the first thing I think someone faces is what words is it okay to use? If I use this word, is it a word from actually from the 1960s that we, sh we just should not be saying now? And if you haven't been having regular conversations, I mean, I think, you know, the, when we're doing this recording, Brexit is still being debated. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have a problem talking to you about Brexit and revealing that I was ill-informed, but the, the process of talking about it would refine my opinions. Mm -hmm. But if I'm frightened to talk to you about race, um, I'm not rehearsing those arguments, I'm not trying out that language, I'm not getting your reaction, um, and so I become more and more frightened about talking about it, because the longer I don't talk about it, the more, the first time I open my mouth, it reveals that I'm not up to date with language use, and I'm not up to date with the way that we talk about it in a way that wouldn't be offensive. Um, and I think the other thing is, actually, it's very contested, and even if I'm using language which is politically correct, 
it might be contested because mm. it's 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 not a simple area. Right. So we might challenge each other, um, and that might be frightening. And I, I think, particularly, um, I, my experience here was that black colleagues didn't want to talk to white colleagues because they didn't like their attitudes, and white colleagues were frightened to talk to, talk to black colleagues because they might reveal something in their attitudes that they weren't comfortable with. Understood. So before you started the, uh, mm-hmm. the what you call the institutional conversation around mm-hmm. race. You did the brave move, or took the brave step, mm-hmm. I say, to lay out some ground rules. Mm-hmm. Now, we live in an era where people don't necessarily want to be told what to do, mm-hmm. or to say, you know, you can't say this, or you can't mm-hmm. do this, and this is how we're going to do yeah. things. What were those ground rules, and how were they received by, yeah. by the people you were talking to? Yeah. Um, we, I had a group of people to work towards our Race Equality Charter, Mark, um, and they were probably approximately half and half BAME and white. And my my own experience, as I said, I, I'd studied communication and gender. My own experience was that um, people do struggle with the language and we had to make that explicit at the start. We had to say, we, we will struggle with language. It is contested. Um, we may be out of practice you know, or you know, in the US, there are different words that are acceptable from Britain. So, people of colour is a, is a common term in the US. It's much less common in Britain. Um, and we're just going to have to talk about the language, and we're going to have to be tolerant of each other if we make um, a mistake or if we say something that we can, you know, somebody considers offensive. What we'll need to do is just explain why, and that's part of what we're learning collectively. And I probably said, is that okay? And they said, yes. Um, but there was some other things happened that I hadn't predicted. So one was the first people to talk with the white people in the room. And I hadn't seen that coming. Um, it hadn't occurred to me that the white people might think they had more right to talk than the BAME people. Um, but then I thought, well, from a gender perspective, it's we know that men often are more dominant in conversations than women. So why would I be surprised that the more privileged group thought they had more right to speak. So after that, I was quite careful to structure the meetings to make it hard for white colleagues to speak first. Because I didn't want to say, don't speak first, because I felt it was, it was just too explicit and, it, and they, would be, they wouldn't speak after that. And I thought, I need, I need everybody ready to speak, but I need to structure it to make sure that I um, downplay the ability of the white colleagues to dominate. During your group discussions, uh, you mm-hmm. became aware of microaggressions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a term that I, I hear used a mm-hmm. lot more regularly. Yeah. Um, explain what microaggressions actually are and how can they be displayed? Yeah. Um, so I think microaggressions is a great term and it covers things like body language, which are passing. Um, they, they happen and they're gone. Um, they could be caused by lots of different things, so it's quite hard to say that was a microaggression based on race, but it's part of our experience of conversations um, and the kind of things they are are eye contact, so how long people make eye contact for, who they make eye contact with, um, whether they use your name or not when they're talking to you, things like posture, whether people turn towards you as if they want to talk to you or they turn away. Um, And all of these things are signals that we're picking up all the time about somebody's willingness to engage with us and their interest in us. And we're all responding all the time to those signals all around us. Um, 
people can be can inadvertently signal they're not interested um, because they have something else to do. They need a cup of tea or they need to go to the loo. So you can't always read intention. But if it's happening over and over again, um, what somebody on the receiving end of microaggressions will feel is that they don't belong, they're not appreciated, and things are harder for them. Um, and I've looked at them from a gender perspective. I've looked at turn-taking in meetings and who gets to talk. Um, and I've also learnt about it from a race and ethnicity perspective, um, partly by talking to colleagues, to BAME colleagues, about their experience. Um, so one example was a, a BAME woman who walked into a lecture theatre where she was the only black woman walking in. And she, she just talked to me about what that felt like and allowed me to get a bit of empathy for, for, what that, for how hard it was to, just to start her learning journey to walk into mm -hmm. a room where she, was, she looked different from everybody else in that room. Mm -hmm. Another term that uh, is being used a lot more regularly mm. is unconscious bias. Mm. So as a, as a black man, I've heard this term used and mm -hmm. there's been instances where I've thought to myself, well, is this now a term that is being used to remove accountability uh, mm -hmm. and almost to justify yeah. in, in some cases what is actual racial prejudice yeah. how does someone like me and the people yeah. like me and everyone yeah. in general yeah. how do you identify between what is unconscious bias yeah. and what is actual racism for me unconscious bias is a useful term because it allows somebody like me to think about things i might be doing that are disadvantageous to BAME colleagues without my intending it and for me that's useful because it means I don't have to get defensive I just I have to think about what it might be and what I need to do differently um, without feeling that I'm a bad person basically so that is the usefulness of that term I think the other thing is unconscious bias is incredibly widespread it's um, it's an assumption that we all generalize we all use stereotypes mm, mm. Um, it's part being human it, mm -hmm. it makes dealing with being human much quicker because you can make quick decisions right um, so we're actually programmed for unconscious bias but I, I actually hadn't seen it from the perspective you've just said because for me it certainly doesn't release us from our responsibility to think about it the fact that I have unconscious bias and I'm programmed to have that does not release me from the responsibility of changing it of trying to understand it um, it just makes it it makes harder in the sense that we, we obviously don't always understand where it comes from or how it works but we still have to do something about it I, I certainly do not see it as um, being released from responsibility. And the other thing is, I don't think it's different from actual racism. So I don't think it's about intention, I think it's about effect. And the effect of unconscious bias is just as bad as the effect of conscious bias. You know, if it stops someone being interviewed for a job or getting a promotion, it's as bad <laughs> as someone intending it. So linking back to the barriers for success, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of your proposed solutions um, mm. to actually remove these barriers mm. or help uh, BAME students and staff overcome these yeah. barriers? Yeah, so I think first of all um, th the conversation is really helpful because awareness is, is a necessary first step but actually my, what seems to have happened at the university is actually awareness has allowed a lot of change to take place because um, we've reduced our attainment gap from 20% to about 15% and I think that's been the result of these conversations. It's the, the result of staff becoming more aware of the impact of our practices. 
um, and the importance of giving BAME students as much time after lectures as white students, because it's those little, you know, things that, uh, um, unconscious things or informal things, like who do you talk to at the end of the lecture, that we think has an impact on students' achievements. Um, and that has started to change just by talking about it. So that's really good. Um, I think there's other things like making sure um, processes are very clear and transparent. So that could be assessment and the way we mark, or it could be promotion criteria, making sure everybody has access to them, um, that the rules are clear and that people follow the rules. Um, because I think that's, that's a way that people who are otherwise inadvertently um, discriminated against directly or indirectly can start to access parts of the system. Before we finish, yeah. um, could you let our listeners know yeah. where they can find you on, on social media, yeah. whether that be LinkedIn or Twitter? Yeah. I'm on both LinkedIn and Twitter, um, and I'm Sean Waring, and Sean is a Welsh name, but it's spelled with an H, S-H-A-N. Um, so, I'm, yeah, and I'm, a- I'm active on both. Sean, it's been a pleasure speaking mm. to you today. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us, and I'm sure your thoughts, opinions, and feedback will be extremely beneficial for our listeners thank you so much thanks chris and good luck with black history month thank you